On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about a scandal that kind of disappeared all of a sudden. That would be the SNC-Lavalin situation. What has happened with it? A group in Ottawa is looking to get an update and to find out if the RCMP is doing anything, and if so, what is it doing? Because it seems to have gone completely silent. We're also talking, speaking of Ottawa, about a bill that has left the Senate and is going to be heading back to the House of Commons for a vote. This will allow people with mental health issues to access physician-assisted suicide. This is a very concerning to a lot of people idea for a whole lot of reasons. We're going to talk to a a psychiatrist, head of the psychiatry department at a Toronto hospital, who is one of those who shares those concerns. And we're going to talk about an Olympic boycott. Should it happen in Beijing? There's lots of talk now, lots of rumblings that countries should be boycotting Beijing. Should that happen? Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I want to throw three letters at you right now that might make you flinch a little. No, no, not LRT. That's for another day. We're not LRT. You're off the hook for LRT today. No, no. SNC. Remember SNC Lavalin? Remember that whole situation? That was two years ago already, that story broke. Two years. Time is just flying by. Anyway, it's also been about a year and a half since we heard rumblings that maybe the RCMP was involved in this or trying to get some documents or doing something. And then silence. It seems as though we've heard basically nothing. And at this point, I'm not entirely sure, and maybe my next guest can help me with this. I'm not entirely sure if the RCMP is investigating, did investigate, isn't investigating. But from the sounds of it, very few other people know really what's going on either. And that includes my next guest. He is the co-founder of Democracy Watch. Uh, that has sent a letter calling on the RCMP and prosecutors to provide some kind of update on what, if anything, is happening with this investigation. His name is Duff Conacher. He joins us now. Duff, thanks for doing this today. Very much appreciated. My pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, Do we know absolutely for a fact the RCMP is investigating, or is it just that they might be investigating? Uh, It is just that they might be investigating. The last news we had in August 2019 was that they were examining the matter seriously. Okay. That's not the same as investigating. No. That's (laughs) pre-investigation. Okay. Um, All right. And so silence. They haven't given an update in a year and a half, and they're still considering whether to investigate, then that's just ridiculous. And... uh, that's why we need an update now as to what's going on. Well, I was going to say, what does silence actually mean in a case like this? I mean, if, if they were not going to investigate and there were lots of calls, including from leaders of political parties and other, if they were not going to investigate, would they not have said something or should they not have said something? They should. Um, generally, in these situations, uh, there's a special prosecutor that's appointed in most provinces, usually someone from outside the province someone who's not under the control or direction of the Attorney General of the province. Um, BC has that system. Ontario's done it as well. When you have politicians, cabinet ministers involved in allegations of wrongdoing. And those special prosecutors give explanations publicly what they decide to do. Now, in BC, that special prosecutor is still chosen by the Attorney General. uh, And... They've used a guy named David Butcher a lot of times. He's, 
he's essentially buried three situations by just delay. He, he took up to three years to, to report on one situation and, just, and then issued a short announcement saying, I'm not prosecuting anybody and explaining there wasn't enough evidence. So it wasn't much of an explanation, but at least it was a public statement. And we shouldn't have to wait that long. I mean, we had pretty much all of the evidence that's likely to come out because the Trudeau cabinet's blocking the RCMP from uh, talking to certain people and, and getting access to certain records, claiming cabinet secrecy, the most abused secrecy loophole in our federal uh, uh, open government law. And uh, also the Trudeau cabinet denied that information and witnesses to the uh, ethics commissioner. But the ethics commissioner came out with a report, having looked at a lot of emails, talked to a lot of people, and we had all of that information in that report, which came out in August 2019. So there's no way it could have taken this long for them to decide what to do. And they, the public is owed an explanation if they've decided not to prosecute anyone. Well, it's not just the, I mean, it is the public. You're right, of course. But there's another part of this too. And there was a piece by Robert Fife from the Globe and Mail, who was the guy who, as I recall, broke this story when it first happened. And um, this was from just about it. So this was two years ago, the story broke. Last year around this time, he had a piece that said there are various la la lobbying organizations that are trying to do their own investigation and to probe into SNC-Lavalin, but they're on hold until they get clearance or get told the RCMP investigation, if it's going to happen, has concluded. So it seems like until uh, the yeah, RCMP... That's, quite, that's slightly different. Um, okay. Democracy Watch has filed complaints with the lobbying commissioner about SNC's lobbying. So that was lobbying. you. Okay. Back to 2014, and also most specifically that Kevin Lynch, a board member of SNC-Lavalin, who's paid to be a board member, had lobbied on the SNC-Lavalin situation, and that all came out from the Ethics Commissioner's report and other testimony before the House Committee. And we called for that investigation in uh, April of 2019. And the lobbying commissioner, when uh, investigating the situation, uh, can, if she thinks that the law has been violated, that someone hasn't registered as a lobbyist when they should have, then refers that on to the RCMP for investigation. So that's under the lobbying law. That's not the same as the other allegation, which is obstruction of justice, which is a violation of the criminal code by the uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and, and Finance Minister Morneau and some of their staff and the former clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Wernick, all pressuring the Attorney General to stop the prosecution of SNC-Lavalin. So you have two different uh, situations, both of which we need an update on both the obstruction of justice investigation and the violation of the lobbying law investigation. And then another that, third, third thing that's going on is Democracy Watch is challenging the Ethics Commissioner's ruling on the situation. The Ethics Commissioner, Mario Dion, found Trudeau guilty of violating the ethics law by pressuring the Attorney General, but let nine other people off, um, former Finance Minister Bill Morneau and some Prime Minister office staff, some of Morneau's staff, some others, he let them all off, even though they did the exact same thing as Trudeau, which was pressure the Attorney General. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Duff, I think one of the challenges here, and, and you know, look, you are obviously someone who very closely follows the political and the other machinations in Ottawa. A lot of other people do too. Many people, though, I mean, have the attention span that we don't remember what we had for breakfast, let alone what happened two years ago. 
And we've had a whole other scandal with the Wii scandal in between. Do you think people generally are still engaged or still really even care what comes of the SNC-Lavalin situation? Uh, well, it's hard to tell. They, they should be, because if you want to have a democratic good government, then you have to have uh, what's called a rule of law, which simply means fair enforcement of the law. If you violate the law, you're prosecuted or held accountable uh, in some other way, if it's uh, not a criminal law that you violated. And doesn't matter how powerful you are in society, you still face the same scrutiny, investigation, and standard in terms of law enforcement. Uh, unfortunately, often in, in Canada, when powerful politicians and government officials are involved in these things, even in BC, as I mentioned, when you have a special prosecutor appointed who's supposedly somewhat more independent, from the government, delay is a tactic that is used to try and make things go away. And they delay and delay. Some people may resign or an election happens and the politicians involved in the wrongdoing are defeated or they retire. And then they get to walk away. And that's, mm. that's the Canadian way, very much so. <laughs> uh, and history yeah. shows that. And, you know, actually in Ontario, if you violate the Ontario ethics law for politicians... Uh, and then you retire or resign, the integrity commissioner has to stop the investigation. You're actually allowed to walk away and not be found guilty and go on into the rest of your life without being found guilty of violating the law if you face such an allegation or investigation. So they actually put that right in the law in Ontario, that if you walk away from your job, you walk away from an, any accountability for violating hmm. the law. So that's how bad things are in Canada. People should be interested in that because as long as the accountability system works in that way, in other words, it doesn't work, then there's not a big incentive for politicians and government officials to actually comply with the law if they know they'll just be able to walk away if they get caught. Well, and the federal system, I don't think, has exactly the same thing. But look, we, we keep hearing rumblings of a summer election, possibly. If, the, if this thing is still out there, no conclusion to it, and the liberals call a summer election and they win... Is the answer then that is going to be given? Well, look, we got a whole new government now. It's not even the same people in office necessarily. So, you know, come on, it's done. I mean, it, it seems that if we get past an election, this thing is almost useless, isn't it? Well, no, it's never useless to have someone held accountable for uh, violating a law. But, uh, yeah, that's part of our the Canadian way, as I was describing that also if elections pass and voters vote the same people in, that you see police officers and prosecutors say, oh, well, you know, they won an election, so we'll just let it go. And it shouldn't work that way, obviously. And uh, the public has a right to know what they've decided to do and explanations of what they decided to do. And if the explanations are not good enough, then there should be a prosecution, and Democracy Watch is considering uh, pursuing a private prosecution, which is allowed under our criminal code, if we don't get a good explanation from the RCMP and the Crown prosecutors in this case. You know, more than one lawyer has commented on the situation and said, all the evidence seems to be there uh, for an obstruction of justice charge. For uh, a, a criminal uh, violation, you have to prove intent, that the person did it with intent, and uh, the ethics commissioner found that Prime Minister Trudeau knowingly and willfully uh, pressured the attorney general and directed his staff to do the same. So that's intent. It's already proven. Mm. I mean, we have all the evidence and we have the pr proof of intent. Uh, 
where's the prosecution? So, we only have a couple seconds left, but let me just ask you one more thing about that then. Even if you got to that point, even if the RCMP or someone came to that same conclusion and said, yeah, clearly there is violation here, do you truly believe that the RCMP would ever charge a sitting prime minister with a criminal charge? Um, one would hope so. Otherwise, we do not have, again, what's called the rule of law. We do not have fair law enforcement. We're not a democracy, and we do not have democratic government, according to every international standard and every independent court ruling that's ever been issued. Those things are essential, or you cannot call the country a democracy. So that is, And in that this is case, def- prosecutors should not be making this decision behind closed doors. They should let the courts decide. Sure. Because we don't, it's an unprecedented situation, and so the courts should be ruling on it. Uh, not some prosecutors who may be under some undue influence. That is Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch and adjunct professor at University of Ottawa. We love having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you very much for your interest. Take care and stay safe. That is, uh, it's a story to keep following because it certainly is, uh, it seems to have just sort of vanished into the ether and um, one way or another shouldn't. There should be a conclusion when there was something that significant. You don't have to think he's guilty. You can think he's guilty, but there should be a conclusion. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last week, the Canadian Senate voted that the Canadian laws should be changed to exclude mental health from medical assistance in dying, from physician-assisted suicide, that, that mental health should now be allowed. The doctor should be allowed to help those with mental illness commit suicide if they so wish. Now, it has to go back to the House of Commons, but if it's ratified, if this is voted on, within 18 months, this could be allowed to happen in this country. And some are cheering this as a great step forward because mental health is health. Mental health is like physical health. Mental illness is illness. Others are saying, wait, we are now walking down a very, very, very dangerous path here because there is significant difference between someone who is terminal physically and someone who has depression. One of the people who is expressing great concerns is Dr. Sonu Gand. He is the chief of psychiatry at the Humber River Hospital. He is also the former head of the former president of the Canadian Psychiatric Association. He joins us now. Dr. Gand, thanks so much for doing this today. Very much appreciate it. My pleasure, Mr. Radley. Thank you for having me on. Uh, this was, you know, we, we've been down this path little by little with the physician-assisted suicide, but th- this was inevitable, wasn't it, that we would get here, that that once we had opened the door to physician-assisted suicide, eventually mental health was going to be put on the table and eventually become part of the discussion? I actually don't think so, because the whole reason that society has entered into um, providing medical assistance in dying is premised on the notion that people have grievous and irremediable medical conditions. And there's no doubt that mental illness can be as grievous and serious as any other illness. And the suffering from it can be terrible, just like with any other illness. However, the simple reality is that all of the evidence to date does not support that we're able to predict irremediability in mental illnesses. And that's a key part of the problem here. Meaning what? Meaning that we we can tell if someone has cancer that they are in all likelihood going to die, if it's terminal cancer, but if you have mental illness, there's no guarantee that you're going to get worse and worse? That's exactly it. And 
you know, this is not something which hasn't been looked at. It has been looked at to see whether we are able to predict irremediability. And even groups as internationally renowned as the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH, they've looked at this issue. And in the context of MAID itself, they've actually concluded that there is simply not enough evidence available in the mental health field to ascertain whether a particular individual has an irremediable mental illness. And that, of course, is entirely the point, that if we're making predictions of um, somebody who's in a state of irremediability, we have to be able to make those predictions. And in mental illness, we cannot. Whereas for many medical illnesses, including cancer, as you mentioned, but even things like ALS or spinal stenosis or neurodegenerative conditions, where we understand the biology much better, we can make much, much more reasonable predictions. And, and so it's a false conflict. Sometimes expansion advocates say, well, everything in life is uncertain. We can't predict things in medical illness either, and there are miracle cures. Those are completely different issues. There's no question that our ability to predict irremediability in mental illness is lacking. And if that's not there, then you have to ask yourself, what are we actually providing death for to somebody who actually could get better? And we cannot predict when they won't get better. So you could be asking, to, you could be feeling today very legitimately like you want to die today, but in a month or two, if you get proper treatment, you may feel very much different from that, but too late. Well, that's, that's certainly part of it. I mean, you're touching on another issue, which is also very concerning, is that, you know, that, that's, and I think that part of the reason we're at the um, kind of bridge that we're on right now, that we're seeming to go over, is that a lot of the people who are advocating for expansion of made to mental illness say that, well, it would be discriminatory not to provide it because mm -hmm. we provide it for other medical conditions. However, the reality is that it's discriminatory to provide it if there are such significant differences between mental illnesses and physical illnesses, which is not to delegitimize mental illness, but to point out the very real differences. And you've actually alluded to one of those, which is in mental illnesses, suicidality itself can be not just a core feature, but a diagnostic feature. That's different from any medical illness. No medical illness has suicidality as a part of its actual diagnostic criteria. So yes, we opened the door to uh, exposing people to arbitrary premature deaths when they might be suicidal from a mental illness and they may get better. And this actually leads to one other uh, fallacy that people unfortunately sometimes think that we are discriminating against people with mental illness if we don't provide them the choice for this. It's not a choice about whether you are seeking a treatment option. It's about whether your illness is irremediable. And that's not a question of choice. That is something that the illness and the course of illness determines if it's irremediable. So irremediability is not about autonomy. And the simple reality is we cannot determine irremediability in mental illness right now. And we also, when people apply for 
um, assisted dying for purposes of mental illness or when they have mental illness, we cannot easily distinguish those requests from people who are suicidal. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just to simplify and correct me where I, when I, if I get anything wrong here, because it's obviously going to be a long bill, but a couple of the highlights, as I understand it, one is that with this new bill, the, the waiting period is going to be reduced significantly. And two, the number of people, witnesses or people that have to sign off is going to be fewer. Um, that would seem, both of those things would seem to make it so that there may be treatment for mental illness, but we're going to make it so you could actually go ahead with this before the treatment could even kick in, which makes it even more confusing. You know, you raise excellent points. Um, when we do have successful treatment in mental, when people have mental illness, or even when the course of illness itself improves, that can often take a long time. We're talking weeks to months. And the idea that a 10-day waiting period gets shortened even more uh, is concerning. With mental illness and suicidality related to mental illness, people are often ambivalent. They go back and forth in their wish to be alive or not. And so you can imagine how that plays out if you shorten the waiting period as well. And, And so anything that reduces safeguards becomes problematic, especially when you extend this to a vulnerable population. One thing I'm very puzzled about with this, and the first criteria that the law that has written, the law requires is this, and this is a quote, being an adult, at least 18 years old, who is mentally competent to make healthcare decisions for themselves. That's, that's the criteria to be eligible for medical assistance in dying. Is someone who is believing they want to kill themselves because of depression, mentally competent to be able to make such a decision. It seems to be antithetical to the whole point. That does not sound like someone who could be mentally competent to make a decision for themselves. Well, the vast majority of people with mental illness are mentally competent. They do actually have capacity. And certainly when we are offering different choices for different treatments, including whether they want medication or not, could be psychosocial interventions that also help. People are competent to make those decisions. And this highlights one of the uh, other fallacies in this, which is that capacity will provide a safeguard against people making decisions to end their lives, which if they had continued to live, they would regret. Uh, capacity is not that safeguard. The idea of legal capacity, it's a very high threshold in that sense. Vast majority of people retain capacity. However, the symptoms of mental illness, like suicidality, can still affect their decision-making. So you can have an impact on decision-making from symptoms of illness and still have capacity. I, I no, I understand for sure. I, I don't want to suggest that anyone who has any kind of mental illness does not have a mental capacity to make decisions. I don't mean that. But if you are at the point where you are looking to end your life, that seems like you may have crossed a threshold that would make your decision making about your your about your future difficult. And and in that regard, you are absolutely right. You know, we have been uh, reassured by people who are advocating for expansion that when you are seeking MAID, you are not doing it because you're suicidal. 
And when you look at the data in North America, that actually is true. But that's because the data in North America has so far been for people seeking aid when the end of life is reasonably foreseeable. As soon as you expand MAID to non-end-of-life conditions and to mental illness, like they have in the Benelux countries in Europe, as soon as you expand it, then you find that we cannot tell apart the people who are motivated with suicidal thoughts from people who would otherwise be seeking MAID uh, oh. as it currently is in North America. That's a finding Very... that, that the CCA expert panel found as well, that we cannot easily tell the difference between suicidal motivations of people seeking made for mental illness. Very quickly, because we only have a few seconds. I wish we had a lot more time on this one, but the flip side of this, and let me just throw this out because I'm sure you've heard this before. If someone is going to commit suicide anyway, why not allow a doctor to be involved just to do it with some sense of dignity because they're capable and they're going to do it anyway? The significant majority of people who attempt suicide do not try again and do not eventually end up taking their lives. And so the notion that we have people who are going to end their lives anyways, and we can predict who those are, that's not, that, that's a false notion. And, and so most people, as I was saying, are ambivalent with this. They go back and forth and if and when they get better, they continue to want to live. So we cannot identify the people who unfortunately end up at this point still taking their lives. There are some doctors who, who, who do that, but we can't identify who those people will be. Dr. Sonu Gand, uh, very much appreciate the time. Thank you so much for doing this today. My pleasure. And thank you for uh, devoting time to this important topic. Uh, the uh, You can read more about this. There's a piece at thespec.com. Made, M-A-I-D, for Mental Illness Opens Dangerous Doors by Dr. Gand. Uh, you can see that there. You know, look, anyone, I, I, am, I am so thoroughly opposed to this idea of expanding this. And here's why anyone who has had someone in their life who has gone through a difficult time with mental illness or depression or something else and then come out the other side, and hopefully that's everybody, the thought that in the middle of that valley, we would say it's okay to have a doctor come in and, and end their life because we can see it. Not always, it's not always, but so often it's just, it's, it's such a, it's, it's such a slippery slope. It is such a slippery slope. It's so scary to think what could happen if we do this, but it looks like probably, probably we're going to, and then Pandora's box is open and that's a sad, difficult, scary place to be. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. There have been in recent days and weeks and now months, but certainly increasing in volume and number, it seems, a larger and larger number of people, organizations, groups, whatever, who are calling for the boycott of the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. And what they are citing is... Well, human rights violations and the treatment of the Uyghur minority and uh, crackdown on democratic freedoms in Hong Kong and things like that. And they are saying, look, how can we, how can we possibly play along with this and allow Beijing to host a, a propaganda games and us be a party to that? And this is, this truly is one of the really tricky, one of the very, very difficult 
situations for any country around an Olympic year to find itself in because you've got your athletes who have been training, who are innocent victims in this, and you've got politics and real world situations. And how do you balance the two? And does a boycott work? And on, we've, we've seen them before on and on and on. I want to bring in Michael Lorraine. He is a Brock University assistant professor of sports management, who is also a guy who has studied and does study the Olympics and other multi-sport games as part of his area of expertise. Michael, thanks for doing this today. Very much appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Scott. Let's uh, let, let's just go right to the big question, and then we'll work our way backwards. Perhaps should we boycott these games? Uh, yeah, that's that's the million dollar question. Um, you know, perhaps from a moral ethical standpoint, I mean, there you can make the argument that you could boycott the games. My my personal opinion is uh, I don't think that we should, uh, and then I do think the pragmatic approach will be that there will not be a boycott. Do they work, do you think? I mean, we've seen them. We saw it in 1980 with the Moscow Olympics, and then the Russians uh, returned the favor in 84 in Los Angeles. But do they work, do you think? Do they have any effect? Right. And so and so that's why, you know, off the top, I, I alluded to there uh, by, by indicating that, they, you know, I don't think a boycott will happen. To the 1980 boycott of the Moscow Games, you know, Jim, Jimmy Carter, president then of the United States, uh, the, the point there was, if we boycott, you know, hopefully we can increase and, and, and mount international pressure against the Soviet uh, occupation, illegal occupation of Afghanistan, um, and, and hope to address that foreign policy issue that way. What ended up happening was the Soviets stayed in Afghanistan, and you know they they won a bunch of medals at the Moscow Games, and 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 no one was the wiser. That the problem. Truly, uh, especially in this day and age, when we think about all the other stakeholders involved, economic and uh, other, uh, you know, certainly otherwise, boycotts don't work because governments aren't the same as national Olympic committees. And so, when we look at, you know, and recently, I know uh, David Shoemaker, the uh, uh, the new chief executive officer, of, or the recent, uh, recently new chief executive officer of the Canadian Olympic Committee. Uh, as well as the chief executive officer of the Canadian Paralympic Committee, have both come out uh, with opinion pieces to say, you know what, boycotts won't work, they're going to hurt our athletes and our sports system, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they are right, because when we think about it, when we look at the system, the Canadian Olympic Committee is not a government crown corporation. They do get some funding from the government through Sport Canada, but the vast majority of the Canadian Olympic Committee's uh, revenue generation comes from private sponsorships as well as the International Olympic Committee itself. Now, the IOC gets its money from media rights and sponsorships themselves, but then when we think about the COC and even the CPC, the Paralympic and the Olympic Committees here in Canada, they're getting a lot of their funding from the TELUSes of the world, from the v, uh, from the RBCs, uh, the Petro Canadas, and and, and you know even. You know, the COC has extended its partnerships to, uh, you know, some new categories like uh, food and wine. I, I think, I believe it's Pillatory Wines here in Niagara uh, that is the official uh, wine sponsor of the Canadian Olympic Committee. So it goes to show you that at the end of the day, the federal government of Canada or the United States or any other country for that matter doesn't actually have, uh, you know, unilateral control over their Olympic body. Uh, so whether or not politicians come out to say a boycott is uh, what they would want and what they would expect doesn't necessarily mean it will happen automatically, certainly, or triggered automatically. And it also doesn't mean that it's going to achieve the foreign policy objectives that they're seeking. 
Um, so th- there is uh, precedent here. Uh, the Jimmy Carter experiment from 1980 is pretty clear that boycotts do not work at the Olympic Games level. Um, and certainly, uh, and, and perhaps we can uh, speak about this uh, in a minute's time, if there if there was going to be a modern boycott, Scott, it would have been in Sochi in 2014. Uh, you know, Russia has been you know vehemently opposed to LGBTQ plus rights for a long time, um, and there was a lot of uh, naysayers uh, suggesting, you know, what maybe we can address that issue by not going to those games. I think going to the games in Sochi and promoting LGBTQ plus rights in spite of the Russian uh, policy on those matters was more effective than to not go and, and have that conversation. Okay. Now that, that's an interesting point. And, and if the Canadian government was going to stand up and say, not only are we not going to boycott, we're going to the Olympics and we are going to not only allow, but encourage our athletes to be vocal and holding banners or signs or outward displays of political positions that would be something, but we're already hearing, and we've heard it in the past that they say, "Well, don't no, please be careful, don't do anything, don't say anything, don't upset anyone." Look, I, I get, I, I absolutely get what you're saying, but if you go back to, um, you know, the, what was it, Mexico City with John Carlos with the fist, you know, or if we go back even further to like '36, which was the first Olympics that was mm-hmm. really a propaganda. That was the Hitler Games, a real propaganda moment for the Nazi Party. Like if we allow our athletes to go there and make their case, that would be fascinating. But I don't see the Canadian government wanting them to do that. I see them wanting to go there if they're going to go and just be nice people and then come home and don't rock the boat at all. I I do agree with that. And part of that is also uh, the International Olympic Committee's crackdown of of, of those type of athlete, won't call them transgressions, but athlete activism. Um, you know, they, they essentially want everyone to play nice because the Olympic movement for them is about, you know, world peace and global unity. And so uh, what I'm suggesting, though, akin to what happened in Sochi, Russia in 2014, is this idea of winning in spite of uh, and using yes. success. Jesse Owens. On, yeah, yeah, exactly. And using that as the, the catalyst to say, you know what, um, despite all of these, uh, you know, domestic failings, our way, like we beat you at your own game, uh, essentially, in your own backyard. And and, and that's obviously, as you alluded to, what Jesse Owens did at the Hitler game. So, you know, I I don't suspect that the Canadian Olympic Committee or the Paralympic Committee will prevent its athletes from going. These athletes have been training for a long time. The NHL, to bring in more of an economic argument to this conversation, Scott, the NHL has been ramping up to send its athletes to Beijing uh, as part of their sort of international strategy. China is extremely important. There is no coincidence that the NHL did not send its athletes to Pyongyang, uh, excuse me, Pyongyang, uh, South Korea um, in 2018, but held off and now are going to send their athletes for 2022. It's because the Chinese market is super important to the growth of hockey Mm -hmm. internationally, as opposed to the South Korean market. Um, and that is also going to drive this conversation. It is important to have Connor McDavid, uh, Nathan McKinnon, and, and you know, uh, you know, perhaps Mitch Marner, if you want to make that stretch, at the Olympic Games playing for Team Canada um, for the NHL. It's important to have Austin Matthews play for the Team USA, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, certainly there will be that economic argument as well. I don't, I do not see a full-scale boycott, uh, as I mentioned, but. <laughs> 
you know, it, it is an important thing. I, I think that the Beijing context is more uh, dynamic from a foreign policy standpoint than the Sochi-Russia example. You know, the two Michaels, as you mentioned, the, the genocide of, of, of Chinese Muslims uh, in the Northwest, if I'm not mistaken, uh, part of the country. So there's, there's a lot going on with China, um, as there was a lot going on with Russia uh, back in 2014. But it's just simply not a situation where sport can overtake the foreign policy decisions of uh, federal politicians, whether it's in this country or our neighbors to the south. Right. And there's no separating. I mean, as much, much as, you know, people like me who love sports, people like you who love sports, there, there's as much as we would like to, there's no separating the politics from the Olympic movement. It is intrinsically woven into it. This is a political thing as much as it's a sporting thing. And, but to go to your, your theory that the IOC likes to put out there, and, and I, I know you suggested it as a theory or as a, a hope that somehow this will bring peace to the world and the Olympics will better the area and better the government, all this. China had the Olympics in Beijing in 2008, the Summer Olympics. And if you look between 2008 and 2021, they haven't become less problematic in some ways. They've become more belligerent on the world stage. So there's no evidence, at least with this particular country, I don't think that you can say, oh, well, look, the Olympics are going to really calm the region and and make them rethink their positions and make them better neighbors. There's, there's no evidence to that effect. No, and, and, and that's to, to my to my theory and, and, and position that the Olympic Games are about, it's your coming out party. It's your opportunity to have the international limelight and spotlight on you for that two-week period, um, and then certainly the Paralympic period after that as well, to a lesser extent, but to have the world's eyes on you. And, and China in 2008 was its coming out party, and perhaps uh, give, giving it that international credo or, or credibility uh, to say, you know what, we have we have arrived, and, and now in 2022, uh, you know, Beijing is now sh- trying to demonstrate it's an exercise its sporting might, where sport is the proxy for performance on the international mm-hmm. stage. Uh, you know, it's it's not every day that you know China's not in a physical war, uh, you know, with England or something akin to World War Two or World War One. Uh, you know, we don't we don't have those types of conflict uh, to that mass extent. But sport is that is, is that battlefield, and so uh, it, to, to to draw those military complex lines there, and, and so sure. yeah, you know, to, to a certain extent, you know, this is important because it's you know our guys against your guys, our gals against your gals, and so in in that way, you know, going to China and beating them, quote unquote, at their own game is going to be important because the Chinese are, as you mentioned a little bit belligerent when it comes to these sorts of things. They, they do invest a lot of time and effort into trying to demonstrate that their way is perhaps more appropriate than some of the other ways. Um, and, you know, again, we can read that into, into that as we, we shall. But I, I think the best thing for Canada in particular to do is to say, you know what, we're not going to not go. We're going to be a part of this conversation ongoing. We're going to play within the IOC's rules and guidelines. And but more importantly, we're gonna uh, we're gonna stand behind and, and and support our athletes who are at an elite level and beat the Chinese and other nations at an elite level and demonstrate our commitment to not only sporting excellence but again sport as a proxy for uh, you know our standing in the world. Is the if you were going to do a boycott, is the ultimate goal of a boycott to embarrass the host? To, to show them up and to show them that you, we're not there and we hope that the world notices that we're not here to embarrass you? 
I, I think that, that, that it, well, it's a little bit mixed, Scott, but, but I think one of the primary, uh, you know, MOs of, of a boycott, at least from a political standpoint, would be to gather as much international support as possible. The hope is that it would be a quote-unquote monkey see, monkey do, that if we boycott, someone else will boycott, and then it creates a snowball effect. Uh, right. Because you know, Canada couldn't do this by itself. Canada no, trying to do a boycott by itself is, a, is nothing. It's a sneeze in a windstorm. Right, exactly. And, and, and the perfect storm would be the United States boycotting. The problem with that is NBC in the United States is the primary driver of revenue for the International Olympic Committee. And so if the U.S. were to try attempt to boycott, NBC would, you know, kind of look at that situation and they'd be talking to the USOC uh, as well as the IOC. And, and so, again, we're talking about all of the different networks and politics that are at play here. But ideally, in a perfect world, you know, so a country that did boycott and had its Olympic committee, uh, you know, appreciate and, and accept that boycott. The hope would be that others would boycott so that there was insurmountable pressure that the Olympic Games, in this case in Beijing, would almost be it would, it would almost be illogical to have them, that they would spend, you know, 10 plus billion dollars to have a two week party that no one showed up to. And, and, and I think mm. to put into layman's terms or layperson's terms, rather. That is that is the goal is to to say you're having a party, but not the cool kids aren't coming to it. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a great analogy. Now, here's a crazy question for you. I just thought of this as we're talking. Could you, if you were, let's say, the states decided to get into a boycott, and and again, I think it's because of the things you've just pointed out, the money and everything, very long shot. But let's say the states decided we couldn't tolerate going with what's going on there. Could the states announce that we are going to hold a parallel games in Lake Placid or in Vancouver where the facilities exist? And if you're one of the countries that can't abide going to China with whatever, we're offering so your athletes don't have to have wasted their time. We are holding a parallel non-Olympics Olympics here at the same time. Is that is that the craziest thing anyone's ever thought? Because it probably is. It's just, as I say, it's one of those moments of well, we don't want to screw over our athletes. Maybe this is a way to do it. It's, it's not this. I mean, I, I've heard a lot of kooky things in my time, but but you know, it's it's interesting <laughs> because what, what 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 would happen there, Scott? Though, is it would throw the entire system into disrepute, um, or, or at least put it on its edge. And, and you know, given that we're coming out of COVID and we're and we're talking about building back better and those sorts of sentiments, it's you know, can, should we accept the status quo? Can we you know shake things up a bit? Because to offer a competing games at those times, at that same time, um, and essentially ambush the Olympic Games uh, with, with a, another mega event, bringing the U.S., Canada, maybe perhaps some other nations that have recently signed on to that global rights uh, agreement or, or, or treaty, you know, that, that would be very interesting. Again, I'm not sure the logistics, I'm not sure of the, um, the legalities of that, uh, especially given... These countries, especially if it's their Olympic committees, have been sanctioned to use the Olympic marks because they're a part of the Olympic movement. And so to then participate in a non-Olympic sanctioned thing, again, we're getting into a lot of the weeds here, but it, it would be... Yeah, yeah the Goodwill Games again. The Goodwill Games. Call right, it the Goodwill but, Games. And do... but, but the Goodwill Games still have some Olympic connection to it. So, so when, when, we, when we dig deeper down the rabbit hole, we see that there are major extreme players at play in this particular instance, the International Olympic Committee, who would probably prevent something like that from taking place. But it's not to say that, you know, I mean, look at uh, 
the Invictus Games. It's not, it's not impossible for a new movement to happen. It's just whether or not you can galvanize the exact same organizations, mm-hmm. the exact same federations, and the exact same athletes at the same time. Um, but, you know, certainly, the, again, I, I don't suspect the boycott will happen because, again, you have to separate the, pol- the political will of, uh, again, the elected versus, you know, the Olympic committees of the, each individual nation, um, at, which are separate entities. But, again, as I mentioned off the top, it is still better to go than to not go. A- again, to, to bring it back to the sort of teenage analogy, you know, oh, I don't want to go to so-and-so's party because then, you know, I'm going to give he or she the, you know, the, um, you, you know, they're, they're going to feel better that I came to their party. Um, or, or sorry, oh, they're, they're, they're actually going to be more advantaged because I didn't go to their party. and they're gonna, So it's very, you know, schoolish, childish. But at yes, the same time, yes. going to the party and making the appearance and saying, you know what, in spite of, I'm going to take the high road here and still come to your party, but I'm going to beat you at your own game. That, that has more of an effect than to not go at all. We have just a few seconds left, so let me give you one more thing. Um, always, and, and I mean, I feel, even discussing this, I always feel very terrible for the athletes because, you know, I, I know a number of them. I've talked to many of them. You know what the commitment is and the time and the effort and the sacrifices they put into getting there. So I, and these kind of discussions always, to me, are uncomfortable. That said, or because of the fact that they would be considered pawns in a political game. And we don't want to turn our athletes into pawns in a larger political drama. But at the same time, Michael, is that not exactly what the two Michaels are that are in China right now? They are pawns in a political game. And so if we go, we're saying we don't care about using people as pawns. If we don't go, we don't care about using people as pawns. Either way, we're using people as pawns in a political game. Absolutely. And, that, and that's part of the, I guess you're clearly alluding to a catch 22 for both the Canadian Olympic Committee and the Canadian Paralympic Committee, but also the federal government. It's, you know, do we, you know, use the two Michaels as pawns or do we use Canadian athletes as pawns? Or perhaps uh, there will be another circumstance, another context in which, uh, you know, whether it's international students, whether it's uh, you know, foreign uh, real estate purchasers and speculators. Uh, what, like, what will be the pawns in the game? Uh, you know, essentially, th- there is going to be this long-standing, um, you know, interaction with China. It's going to continue to be like this for some time. That the the sort of Sino Canadian Sino Western complex is very unique, and sport is just one angle, one characteristic of this sort of ongoing, enduring. Uh, conversation and discussion uh, of foreign policy. So I don't anticipate that this will be the last conversation that sport will be that that will uh, sport will have. Again, as I alluded to, there's the NHL, there's the NBA, there's all these other sporting elements that will be looking to China to expand and grow its market. But at the same time, there will be these other foreign policy issues that will continue to rear their uh, their ugly heads. So it's certainly not going to end. I do, as I as you mentioned, I do feel bad for those athletes, but um, if not them, it will be someone else. Michael Lorraine from Brock University, Assistant Professor of Sport Management. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for taking a few minutes tonight. Yeah, thanks so much for having me anytime. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us 
Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.